Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's strange, usually when I'm up here, it says 1.30, but it's 2.30, so I already feel like I'm behind and need to wrap up the sermon, but we're just getting started. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy. Uh, we're looking at two chapters. First in chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 to 9, and then we'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31, reading verses 9 to 13. Uh, and as you're turning there, uh, we are, of course, in between series as we ended our short series last week, and we will begin a, a new one um, when we get to our new location. But today I wanted to address uh, a topic, uh, something that um, maybe we haven't thought too much about as we begin to pursue as a church to the best of our ability this vision for covenantal worship. Now, what is covenantal worship? By covenantal worship, I mean all children ages uh, from kindergarten and up will remain in the service with their parents and the rest of the congregation. Now, I've wrestled back and forth with this uh, personally, uh, pastorally, considering the pros and the cons and what are the merits and what are the objections to it, and hearing the different uh, objections and feedback from those in our congregation and just from other pastors and, you know, books you've read. And here's my conclusion. My conclusion is, is pretty simple. God in the scripture seems to, in his almighty wisdom, deem it that it is appropriate and it is good for our children to stay in the full worship service with the rest of the covenant people of God. I read the scriptures and I just think it's very clear that that is what the Lord is telling us is right and good. And so I know that there are hesitancies, I know that there are objections to it, but it's still worth pursuing as a church. I'm also aware that it's a very unpopular practice amongst other churches when you look at them and you see the prevalence of children's ministries and children's churches. Now, I understand it's going to be a difficult transition for us. It's going to be uh, frustrating, particularly to the parents who uh, now have to uh, do uh, parenting in a way that they haven't done in the past with their children. But, you know, at the end of the day, our decision isn't made based on how uh, easy such a transition will be or whether we are, um, whether it is more practical. At the heart of it is whether we are convinced that God in the Bible gives us this kind of vision for worship. Now, at the very beginning of this sermon, I want to say this now because some of you um, are empty nesters and your children are all grown or they're in high school and, and you don't really have to worry too much about it because they're already in service and then some of you are are single or just recently married without children and you're thinking okay well I don't have kids yet what does this have to do with me um, but two things one if the children stay in the service for the whole service it's relevant to everybody because everybody's affected and secondly um, especially those who aren't parents themselves I want to challenge you to, to, to not just tune out but to actually be really interested in such a topic because uh, one day, if the Lord so blesses you, you will be raising your own children and you need to start thinking about your biblical convictions of this now. Even now, in 10 years, in five years, in two years, what are my convictions about this go going to be? And so uh, with that, we're looking at two portions of scripture today, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 31. So please stand as your act of worship to read and receive God's holy word. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4 to verse 9, and then we're going ahead to Deuteronomy 31. 
Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And Deuteronomy 31, beginning with verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at that place that he will choose, you shall read the law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and please join me in prayer once more. Oh God, would you be honored in the preaching of your word? that the vision you have laid out for us would be caught by this congregation, but not only caught, Lord, but it would lead to a deep conviction in our hearts, and that that conviction would lead to obedience. Oh God, help us, especially the parents in this congregation to whom this speaks probably most um, applicably, but also, Lord, be with everyone else who hears so that as we're instructed and informed by your word, we could be a congregation, Lord, where covenantal worship is welcomed and celebrated and loved and pursued, Lord. So challenge us and bless us. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if you grew up in an immigrant church or if you grew up in an immigrant uh, family, uh, you've probably experienced one reality that's worked itself out spiritually in two, uh, two specific ways. Now, the one reality I'm talking about, of course, is the language barrier between generations. Um, and this, of course, first uh, led to a language-specific ministry in the church that you probably attended growing up. And as a result of these language-specific ministries, uh, children were forced to worship and learn the Bible separately from their parents because one group only spoke the mother tongue and the other group only spoke English. And then that same reality worked itself out in the home where the language barrier continued, and therefore it was an obstacle for parents to speak to their children and with their children about personal spiritual matters. It was an obstacle to bring faith to bear from the church into the home and from, uh, to bring the faith to bear from Sunday into Monday to Saturday. And as a result, I think a lot of immigrant parents redefined their roles and their responsibilities in light of the things that they could manage to do because there was a lot they couldn't manage to do. And so, for example, many fathers uh, didn't view themselves primarily as the disciplers of their children, but became primarily providers of their children, right? always ensuring that there was food and clothing and shelter. And then mothers likewise struggled to communicate with their children, so it was difficult to train and raise their children up in the Lord, so they expressed their love and their care and concern by 
making sure the kids were always fed and always asking, did you have enough to eat? Now, of course, this may not speak to every one of you, but I do think it's an experience that speaks to many of us, and therefore it's important for us to consider. And I think a lot of us in here, being from such an immigrant context, uh, as a result of that, our present practices, both in the church and individually in the home, have been shaped by these kind of past experiences. Because if you did not have spiritual discipleship and biblical parenting modeled to you in your home, then most likely you probably don't practice it in your own family now. You've never seen it done. You've never seen it worked out. How am I supposed to do it? You're left to be the trailblazer and discover it on your own. And then secondly, you may not have had covenantal worship enforced in the church you were raised in. So your gut reaction may be to think it's strange or a bit odd that we as a church would be pursuing covenantal worship. Well, let me make this clear from the, from the very beginning. This is a problem in the immigrant church and context, but it's not a problem only in immigrant churches and immigrant contexts. You see, in the immigrant church, these kinds of generational and cultural language differences, they serve to heighten and exacerbate the issue. But the reality is, to be fair, there are plenty of churches where only one language is spoken, and yet parents still struggle to bring the Sunday faith into the Monday weekday. In fact, you can find plenty of churches where only English is spoken, where children, as soon as they get into the church, are quickly dropped off at their own worship service, or children are dismissed, quietly dismissed in the middle of service while while they go attend their own worship and the adults continue with their own and the family units do not worship together. So to be fair, this is not just a problem in immigrant churches. You can go to a lot of churches and see this reality played out. But for those who have come from that immigrant context, I think you've felt these challenges uniquely and and personally as a result of cultural and language barriers. And without even realizing it, it shaped the way you view church now. I guarantee you, if you grew up in a church where covenantal worship was practiced and I'm up here suggesting it, none of you would go, huh, I wonder if that's going to work or do you really think that makes sense? But it's the fact that we haven't grown up with it. It hasn't been modeled for us that something in us just naturally says, are you sure about that? Now, of course, like I said, though, this phenomenon of having children in their own service and in their own worship is found in churches that aren't just from immigrant context. And really, um, the reasons will always be two. Um, The first will be an an educational reason why they have children's church. Uh, We assume that kids won't get anything out of an adult sermon and an adult service, so let's put them in a message. Uh, Let's send them and put them in a setting where the message spoken to them, uh, the songs are catered toward them, and they can understand and apply the Bible in an age-specific way. So we're thinking educationally. It makes sense to have children be separate. And the second reason a lot of churches do this is a practical one. Um, the infants are going to be fussy and the kids are going to be bored and the parents are going to be distracted and everyone else is going to be annoyed. And so let's just do everyone a favor and just send the kids over to have their own service and to do their own thing. You see, those two reasons make a lot of sense, don't they? An educational one and a very practical one. And the two reasons seem very legitimate. And in fact, it may be some of the reasons that you've thought yourself why covenantal worship would not be such a good idea. So what is a church like Cornerstone supposed to do? As we look into the future of our church, 
which is wide open before us, as we continue to pray, God, send people, send young families with children to our church, how are we going to navigate the waters moving ahead? What answers are we going to give to parents of young children when they come and attend Cornerstone Worship and they're looking for that children's program? We need the scriptures to be our guidance and our wisdom. And that's why we've read from these two portions in Deuteronomy. And here's our gospel truth. Here's a one-sentence summary that I'd like you to walk away with. It is the right of covenant children to be in covenantal worship with God's covenant people. It is the right of covenant children to be in covenantal worship with God's covenant people. We're actually going to begin in Deuteronomy 31 and then make our way to chapter 6. But in Deuteronomy 31, if you turn there, we see Moses begins by giving a command and an instruction to the priests and elders of Israel. So let's read verses 10 to 11. At the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Now, Moses describes an occasion where, and twice he mentions this, all Israel is gathered together to receive God's law. Now, all Israel, Israel is God's covenant people. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that God made a promise to Israel that he will be their God and they will be his people. So Israel then exists in a special relationship with God, unique, different from a way that any other people on the earth have with God. And this relationship now that God has with Israel as his covenant people is based now on promises. And in obedience to the covenant, there are covenant blessings. And in disobedience to the covenant, there are covenant curses. And so we're in Deuteronomy 31, but if you actually go back and you look at Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the covenant curses and the covenant blessings are declared to Israel as the covenant people. Then if you go to chapters 29 and 30, the covenant is renewed with Israel at Moab. So by the time you get to Deuteronomy 31, our chapter today, when Israel gathers to hear God's law read, they gather as God's covenant people. So who constitutes the covenant people? Who are they? Who comes to listen to the law read? Is it only adults? Is it only men? Is it only people who can understand? Is it only kids? Or is it only people who can stand still enough that they can actually listen? Well, Moses tells us in verse 12 who this covenant people is. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones. And the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law. You see, God's covenant people is made up of those who are young and old, men and women, Israelites and sojourners. Even the little ones are counted as the covenant people. And so they share the same responsibility to hear and obey God's law like everybody else. And it's okay, you're thinking, okay, now that makes sense. I see that. That's all in the Old Testament. But what about the church today? Isn't it different in the New Testament? Well, no, not really. Because the church is the New Testament Israel of God. 
The church is based on the same promise that the Lord will be our God and we will be his people. It's a same promise that's received by faith in Jesus Christ and accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. This is why Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the New Testament church in Galatia, says at the end of Galatians 6, 16, he writes, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul calls the New Testament church Israel because now the church is the New Testament covenant people. So if the children belong to the covenant people in the Old Testament, why would they not belong to the covenant people in the New Testament? Just as the children were gathered with everybody else to hear God's law read, and they were expected to love God and obey him in return, so too, even children of believers now today have that same responsibility and expectation. It hasn't changed. What has changed? So then why would we decide to not include the children when we gather weekly as his people to worship God, to hear his word, and then we're dismissed to live our lives in obedience to him. Why would we exempt the children from this? In fact, you want to know something really interesting? Look at verse 13. Moses continues and he says, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. When the children gathered to hear God's law read, it was expected that they could understand, that the little children could understand, that they could learn, and that they could obey God just like everybody else. In fact, Moses says that one of the purposes of gathering, he says, one of the purposes of gathering together is so that the children can hear and learn. Part of the reason God commanded this gathering of all of Israel was for the children. So Moses had that expectation. You know, he didn't call Aaron aside and say, hey, Aaron, you know, I want you to do a kid's reading of the law at the foot of the mountain. And then, you know, then you can, we'll dismiss the kids and then I'll do the adult reading. I'll do the grown-up reading. You know, Moses doesn't dismiss the kids before he read God's law because he, he thought to himself, oh, this is going to be so boring. I mean, the Old Testament's already kind of boring anyway, but these kids are not going to understand a word of this. Let's get them out of here. We don't want the little ones to cry and distract everybody else. It would ruin it for us. Where is that in the scriptures? Everybody in Israel, even the children, they were expected to come, to listen, to learn, to love God. You see, it has always been the practice of covenant children to be involved in the covenantal worship of God's people. We see it here in Deuteronomy 31, but fast forward 1,200 years later, and Apostle Paul, he is writing a letter to the church in Colossae, and he calls them saints. He calls them saints, and saints basically means, uh, the, the, the Greek word just means set apart or the holy ones. So the church is also set apart. Just like Israel was set apart from all the other nations, the church, the saints are set apart. They're the covenant people. And, and what does Paul expect of them when they gather together? Because Paul is expecting them to gather weekly and listen to, listen to God's word read. It's almost the same thing that Israel's doing here, that they are to gather weekly, right? Once every seven days, whereas Israel gathered once every seven years, but once every seven days, and they are to hear God's word read. If you look at Colossians 4, verse 16, here's what it says. 
Paul writes, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. It's the same pattern as Deuteronomy 31. Gather, listen, learn, and then respond. But here's the thing. Who was present at this meeting? When the church in Colossae was gathered together and Paul saying, I want this letter read, who was gathered? Was it only adults? Was it only men? Was it only people who could understand? Were they only people who could sit still long enough to wait for these four chapters to be read? No, even Paul, 1,200 years later, had the same expectation that when the church gathered together, there were parents with their children and that they were in the congregation. And we know this because listen to who Paul writes and who Paul is addressing in this letter because he expected them to be present when, they, when he was reading this, right? So in chapter three, he starts uh, addressing specific kinds of people. Chapter three, verse 18, he addresses wives, submit to your husbands. Chapter three, verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Chapter three, verse 20, children, obey your parents. Chapter three, verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Chapter four, verse one, masters treat your bondservants justly and fairly. The point here is simply he's addressing wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, masters, meaning what? He expected every one of them to be present in the room. He wasn't saying, children, obey your parents, and the parents said, okay, kids need to hear this, go get them. And then they ran into the children's room and said, hey, stop the, you know, the body motions. Come listen to this. And they came to the servants. They came to the service and said, children, obey your parents. And the kids said, okay. And they said, okay, you're dismissed again. That's not what was happening. Where the covenant people gathered together, there too the covenant children were gathered to hear, to receive, and obey God's word. This was Moses' assumption and his expectation. This was Paul's assumption and his expectation. So why shouldn't it be our assumption and expectation? Now, I just tried to make a theological case for this, a biblical case. Now, some of you are still thinking and objecting because of practical and personal reasons. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, do you really expect a five-year-old to sit still and listen to the sermon and understand what the heck you're talking about. But I'm going to say this in all love and gentleness. Let me say this. I 100% expect them to get absolutely nothing out of the sermon and the service when the moment they walk into this building, parents hand them the very tools to distract them from the sermon and the service. I guarantee you that if you do that, they will get nothing from this service. All I know for a fact is this. They cannot listen and understand if they are given headphones and a tablet instead. They cannot learn to listen and understand if they are given permission to leave the room when they get bored. I can guarantee you right now, they will get nothing from this service. And you know, with that pattern and habit formed early in their lives, here's what's gonna happen. Even when they're 16 and they can fully understand everything, they will still get nothing from this service because they've been trained to come in and to just sit through it and grit their teeth 
and just last <laughs> for 30 minutes. But I am also 100% certain that if you engage your child along the way, if you have the patience to walk with your children through the service, if you have the love and wisdom to ask them questions and invite their questions after the service or in the car ride home or when you get home for dinner and you ask, what did you think and what did you learn? And do you have any questions for me? I'm telling you, they will benefit in ways that you cannot imagine. In silent but short ways, the Holy Spirit will form their hearts and shape their minds beyond anybody else's power to do so. Listen to me, please. I'm not asking you to trust me, and I'm not asking you to trust my wisdom, and I'm not asking you to trust all of my parenting experience when I lay out this vision. I am imploring you to trust God and what he has spoken, I believe, so clearly to us. Now, we started with Deuteronomy 31, but that's not actually where God starts, is it? Before the children of Israel were assembled at this assembly, this gathering, you see, they were ready to hear and listen to God's law because the parents were actually doing the preparation in advance at home. This is why Deuteronomy 31 is not the complete picture because before Deuteronomy 31, we need Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 reminds the parents that the work of spiritually raising and training their children is on them in the home day by day. In chapter 31, we see what the priests are called to do. In Deuteronomy 6, we see what the parents are called to do. There is a difference between the priests of Old Testament and the pastors of New Testament and their responsibility and the parents of believing children, of covenant children. You see, the priests, the pastors, call to instruct the whole covenant community, which includes the children, but the parents are called to focus their instruction on the children. The priests are called to teach at regularly gathered uh, meetings, but parents are called to teach every day and in every moment. This is a responsibility, this is a mandate given to parents, not given to priests, not given to pastors or youth pastors or children's pastors. The children of the covenant are prepared and primed for Sunday service because the parents prepare and prime them from Monday to Saturday. If you have never talked to your kids about anything spiritual, anything about God, anything about Jesus, anything about the Bible, Monday to Saturday, how do you expect them to show up on Sunday and sit still and listen? You're setting them up for failure. Here's, here's how I think about it. If you have never taught your daughter how to dribble a soccer ball at home in the backyard, if you've never even shown your daughter a soccer game on the television, then are you not setting them up for failure when you drop them off at soccer childs and they don't even know that you can't use your hands? You're setting them up for failure. If you've never showed your son the alphabet or you've never even taught him or sang to him the alphabet song, how difficult and discouraged will they be when on the first day of school, they learn the alphabet and all the other kids are already reading and they don't know the difference between A and six that they can't tell the difference between a letter and a number. You're just setting them up for failure, but not preparing them. In the same way, somebody needs to teach and model love for God and the love of God to your kids Monday to Saturday, so when they come in on Sunday, it makes a little bit more sense to them. And this somebody is not the priest of Israel, 
And it's not the pastors of churches, it's the parents of children. It is your responsibility and your privilege. And parents, if, if your attitude is in coming to service, just kind of blah. And if you stand during praise without singing, and you take your phone out during the sermon, and you look around the room during prayer, you are teaching your children a lot about God and worship. And that lesson is, one, either he's not that important to you, or even more dangerously, he's not important at all. You see, bringing your kids to church every week will not teach them to love God. It will teach them to despise religion. Let me say that again. Simply bringing your kids to church once a week will not teach them to love God. It will teach them to despise religion. You get to leave and make impressions on their minds and on their hearts that will shape and form them for the future. And the the, the God-honest reality is the impression that's made on them is lasting. It cannot be undone by the most engaging children's programs or the most charismatic youth pastor or the most applicable age-specific craft, lesson, activity, VBS, or body motion. All those things are great, but they cannot undo and reverse the years and years of an impression made on them that says worship is just not that important. And so with that, God wisely says in Deuteronomy 6, let's start, look at uh, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, that Hebrew word translated teach them diligently is just actually one word in Hebrew, and it's the word repeat. Teach them diligently just means repeat the law and love of God to your children day after day in speech and in action. You are to instruct your kids. You are to teach them how to love God with all their heart, soul, and might through your own love for God, through the own way that you are loving the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Moses continues in verse seven, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What is this picture? It's simply a a picture of, of life being the lesson that you show your family. That the home is to be filled with love for God and the love of God from the moment you rise to the moment you sleep, and and that in your household, songs of praise and worship should fill every room of your home, not shouts and arguments across rooms and through doors and from the basement to the third floor. Inquiry should be made about their spiritual life and what they're thinking and what they're learning when you're driving in the car with your kids shouldn't be filled with the radio or whatever music they're listening to as they sit in the back with their own headphones on. Thanksgiving and encouragement should fill the dinner conversation, not complaints about the day and gossips about the coworkers. And prayers for your children and prayers with your children should mark their evening rituals, not just 
teaching them good hygiene and reading them bedtime stories. See, because unlike any Sunday school teacher or children's ministry director who has your child, maybe 30 minutes, maybe one hour, you have your kids seven days a week, every day until they leave your home. And that's why the home needs to be the primary discipleship center, and you are to be the primary discipler and teacher and instructor of their faith. This is built into your role. This is not a responsibility that you want to hand off. In order for there to be a a helpful and edifying covenantal worship on Sunday, there needs to be biblical parenting Monday to Saturday. And then, and here's what's going to happen, then on Sunday, after all this is done, when you gather on Sunday and you worship right next to your child, it becomes an awesome and wonderful privilege. It doesn't become a great inconvenience and a source of distraction. You know, if you love worshiping God, if you love to gather together uh, as God's people, then this hour of worship is one that you should be zealous to share with your children. Look, look, if you love worshiping God, then this hour gathered together should be something you are jealous for and zealous for. And it should make you jealous and it should make you angry the fact that some stranger in some other room is sharing that hour of worship with your child when you are here by yourself. How many of us feel that kind of jealousy? Why is Mr. Bob getting to worship with my kid? I want to worship with my kid. These precious moments in God's presence should be shared between child and mommy and daddy. If you love God and you want your family to love God too, then you should want to share this moment together and fight to make it happen. Now, here's how I think about all of this. This is an extended illustration, but it's actually the only way I really make sense of it in my own head. You know, when you are teaching your children to love the sports teams that you love, when you want them to be fans of the same team that you cheer for and you bleed for, what do you do? You watch the game together. You sit them next to you or you sit them on your lap and you enjoy the thing together. Now, when you sit your five-year-old in front of the TV to watch football, do they know what's going on? No way, they have no idea what's going on. But fathers do this all the time and you know what they say? You got to start them when they're young. You got to start them when they're young because you know that even though they don't understand what's going on, this will form and fashion them to grow up loving what you love and in time they will understand. You have that kind of faith. So in the same way, if if you have no qualms sitting your five-year-old down watching a football game and not understanding any of the commentary that's happening, but you have that faith that one day they will understand, then why do you have reservations and concerns that they don't understand the sermon that's going over their heads? The reality is you shouldn't expect them to get it. You should expect that they won't get it. So what do you do? You walk them through it. You explain what's happening on the screen. You explain what that word means. You teach them what all the motions and calls by the umpire or the referee means, and they pick it up. You know, kids are so smart. Kids are so smart, and to hear otherwise that your kid is not smart enough to understand a sermon is not of the word of God. It's a lie of the devil. 
Kids are sponges, and they absorb so much more than you realize. Everyone with young kids says, you know, my kid is so sassy. I don't know where they got that from. I don't know where they could fire back all of these things. They are so smart. They are sponges. They absorb. And so you know what? A kid, after a few years of watching Sunday football with dad and absorbing the game and the commentary and the language and the vocabulary, they too, sooner than later, begin to understand what's going on and they will grow in love for it. You know, they don't need Nickelodeon or the Disney Channel to run a child version of the football game with child uh, commentary so that they can understand They understand and they will learn to understand. You know how I know this? Because sometimes I'm watching football and there's like an elementary school kid and we're watching the same game. But they understand the game and the plays that are happening to a depth and detail that I don't understand as an adult. You know, it's a little embarrassing, but but it's so true. Then I'm watching and a call happens and I'm confused. Why, why was that flag blown? And this little kid saying, come on, ref. The nose guard, you know, was off the line of scrimmage. And I'm like, what's a nose guard? I thought there were only mouth guards. What's and they look at me and they're like, you know, and they start explaining to me like I'm the little kid. They can understand and appreciate the game because for years they watched football right next to dad. And dad explained to them what was happening when they didn't understand. And they saw how happy dad was to watch his team play, so they wanted to like it too. And so they started asking questions, what's happening, who's that, why did they do that? And dad, one of the rare times, he patiently answered, and he explained, and so they learned, and so they came to love. That's the same thing happening, and that can happen in covenant worship. If this is true, it could, uh, true of a sport, of a hobby, of any interest, then why can't this be true with the covenant children? You know, there will be distractions, there will be frustrations as a congregation. I did it, ask the, the Kangs for this, permission for this, but I think they'll be okay with it. You know, one thing that I know they do is they ask Ella, who's, uh, you know, very, very little. Oh, she's looking at me. <laughs> See, she's listening and she understands <laughs> that they have her repeat certain words that I say. And one time I was preaching, and I'll never forget this, and uh, I said something, and uh, I said, because, you know, we cannot have sex outside of marriage. And I think all of you were kind of like, oh, this is awkward. And then I hear Ella go, Sex! <laughs> It was my favorite moment in all pastoral ministry, and it threw me off. But praise God, she's listening. It's like she's watching football. She's learning. That's what all of us are doing here. It's my prayer that that Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 31 are wedded together in our church. Parents discipling their children, and then the church welcoming them into worship. So friends, believe me when I say children are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God as Jesus showed when he brought them near, so they must not be second-class citizens in our church. You know, they are covenant members. And one day upon personal faith in Jesus, they will receive the promises of the covenant for themselves. And we witnessed this just a few weeks ago in our own confirmations. 
And so we long to see that day happen and we prepare for it by receiving the little ones, the children, and welcoming them and worshiping together with them. Because ultimately the reason we want the children in the service is because we want to see this vision of children and parents, the young and the old, treasuring and cherishing Jesus Christ together. You see, the greatest gift that we can offer to the younger generation, and not just the younger generation of our church, but the younger generation of the church in the 21st century, one of the greatest gifts we can offer is to help them know the love and the forgiveness and the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, because you know his mercy, you know his sacrifice, then you know just how wonderful the gospel is, so you'll be zealous to make sure the next generation knows it. You know, Israel was built into their very life as a community. The Israelites made it a point that the next generation would never forget God's saving deed in the Exodus deliverance. And so we as the New Testament people of God make it a point that the next generation does not lose sight of God's redeeming grace in the cross of Calvary. We do this as we invite them, join with us. You're welcome here to remember and celebrate Jesus Christ with us week after week. And we model for them the joy of being forgiven and the hope of eternal life as we gather to praise, and as we gather to hear God's word, and then we are dismissed to live in obedience to him. If you know the gospel and you've tasted it yourself, you too, friends, will be zealous not just for your own children, but all the children of the church that come to personal saving knowledge of this good news themselves. You know, it's our vision as a church. I'm not a prophet, but trying to look into the future of our church and just say, what is the, what is the vision of this? And it's to see all the covenant children gathered with the whole covenant community and they're joining the chorus of the redeemed that, that everybody from the youngest to the oldest is singing, rejoice, rejoice, let every tongue rejoice. One heart, one voice, O church of Christ, rejoice. And whether that every tongue be the tongue of a child or the tongue of their grandparent, let God's people rejoice with one heart and one voice in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That is our vision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark or left us blind to what we should do. We see and we feel convicted by your spirit that this is the vision given to us. But God, we confess we need faith to believe it. Maybe because of the way we've grown up, but maybe because we haven't seen it modeled, maybe because a few other churches practice it, it's hard for us to believe that this is a, a reality that we can have and experience. But by trusting in your spirit's power and his work in our own hearts and the hearts of our children, uh, by faith we want to pursue this. And God, I pray that, that every member here would, would just be burning with such passion for Jesus and, and what he's done for us and knowing how good it is, having tasted and seen how good it is that, that we yearn zealously, Lord, for the younger generation to also know this Savior themselves and to pray for them earnestly, encouraging them, discipling them, walking together with them so that one day they too would profess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you raised him from the dead. God, fashion this vision before us and give us the strength to obey. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. People of God, receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, young and old, both now and forever. Amen. Friends, hear the words of dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, my friends.